Okay, welcome. Welcome back, everybody, to Zero Sum Empire, episode two. We made it. Yes. <laughs> it's a big milestone. How's it going? It's pretty Joe? exciting. You doing this it? means that this is like a sustained project at this point. Yeah, I think once you hit two episodes, uh, that's that means basically you're professional now. Are we professional podcasters? Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, how you doing? That's good. We should get some business cards made up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Joe and Chad, professional podcasters. <laughs> <laughs> For all your uh, podcasting needs. Um, I don't know. Uh-huh. Uh, it was hard to, uh, you know, uh, learn some of the technology uh, that goes into podcasting. For me, anyway. I'm not, I guess you're more of a production oriented kind of person. Uh, but yeah. uh, anyway, how you doing? Do you have a good week? Yeah, everything's good. Yeah. My life's, you know, I, I live a blessed life. What do you want to say? Hashtag, please never say that again. Wow. Okay. So, uh, Vinod Koshla and Patrick G. Ryan. Yes. Yeah. Vinod Koshla, he's a California tech billionaire. Uh, he, and he started Sun Microsystems. We'll get into it later. Uh, but you know, his genre is tech billionaire. Uh, now he's a venture capitalist and Patrick G. Ryan is, uh, that was your guy, uh, this time. Yeah. He's an insurance man. Aon insurance. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, We'll talk about it. Okay. Um, billionaires in the news. Billionaires in the news. Here we go. Billionaires in the news. Billionaires are in the news in kind of a weird way uh, this week, and it'll become clear as, as we talk about it. Uh, 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 the news item that we're going to be talking about today is uh, the 2018 American Institutional Confidence Poll uh, from the Baker Center for Leadership and Governance at Georgetown University. Uh, they do a poll uh, to study uh, essentially like Americans' opinions on institutions, especially with regard to how much people trust those institutions, how much confidence they have in them to, you know, uh, function appropriately, uh, to make sound decisions and that sort of thing. So I, I thought that uh, I found I found the results of this study really interesting, uh, and especially uh, in relationship to the stuff that we're talking about. So I thought the way to to approach this would uh, I'm going to read you a list of 20 institutions. And uh, I, I was hoping that you could tell me, maybe, maybe. Are you talking like, to me or are you talking to them? I'm talking to you. Yeah. So let's just clarify that I have no idea what you're talking about yet. This is yes, totally I kept new. This, uh, yeah. this is a surprise. I kept this away from Joe all week because I didn't want him to see it uh, uh, because I wanted him to uh, guess. He's probably going to guess uh, correctly, uh, but I'm hoping that he guesses wrong. Okay, let's um, play. Let's see let's what happens. Let's play? All right. Yeah. So I'm going to read you a list of 20 uh, uh, institutions, and you tell me which you think are the most trusted by uh, Americans who are polled in this. 20 is a lot to keep track of, but I'll do Well, you know, some will stick out to you. Some will clearly not be, you know, so, the top three. So pick so, your top three. How about that? You know, I, I'm, I'm going to read you 20. I'm going to take some notes about okay. who, w- which of these institutions I think people <laughs> think are the most trustworthy. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Which ones do they have the most confidence in? Okay. All right. Go. Uh, the executive branch of the government. Uh, religion. Banks, major companies, 
local police, Congress, local government, the military, the courts, political parties, state government, philanthropy, nonprofits, Facebook, Amazon, Google, organized labor, the FBI, the press, and colleges and universities. So out of those 20, these are the, you know, these are the, uh, these are all of them that they studied, right? That the, uh, the Baker Center studied. I've got uh, my top three. You got your top three? Okay. Yeah, what, it was, e- it, yeah, it was actually easier to at least guess than I thought it would be. I'm, I'm sure I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> the top three, my guesses for the top three are religion, the military, and Google. Oh, you got two of them. Uh, religion is way down the list. It's in uh, the bottom third. Uh, but the military is number one uh, by a thin margin. And Google, uh, you said Google? Yeah. Is number three. So I got two out of three of the top you got, three. You yeah, got that's two pretty, out of three. That's pretty impressive. That's pretty um, good. Sandwiched in between the military and Google is Amazon. Uh, yeah. So if you want to know them in order, it goes the military, Amazon, Google, Local police, colleges and universities, nonprofits, the FBI, and then philanthropy. That's about the first half. I just wanted to get down to philanthropy. Hmm. Um, So they break these down uh, by political parties more. So it turns out that for Democrats, Amazon is number one and Google is number four. For for Republicans, Amazon's number three. Uh, uh, and the, the military is number one for Democrats. The military is number three, but regardless, when you average them together, uh, it's military, Amazon, Google, local police, and then colleges, universities, nonprofits, FBI, and philanthropy. Uh, so the moral of this story is we have lots of confidence in billionaire institutions. Is that, that's right. Yes. Uh, we do. And, and so, this is, I, I mean, there there are some pretty hilarious quotes in the uh, uh, in the study itself. Uh, uh, what they're testing, according to them, is a loss of confidence in institutions. So here's the argument that I wanted to make about this, right? Like that, uh, people have been talking about a, a lack of confidence in institutions for a really long time. Everybody from like Anthony Giddens to Slavoj Žižek are talking about. Uh, uh, a decline uh, in the symbolic authority of institutions. It's a, it's a pretty frequent topic whenever you have people writing critical theory or critiques of uh, social systems or sure. sociology. Right? Like it's all over the place, right? It's not that unusual. Uh, what's relatively new, I think, is the quick ascension of uh, non-governmental agencies uh, like corporations to – uh, a, a position of trust that's higher than pretty much any other uh, uh, institutions that we have, right? So, like in in this sort of well documented and and widely understood decline in the confidence in uh, social institutions uh, that we associate with democracy, uh, governmental institutions, there is uh, a, a, the that decline creates a kind of power vacuum, I would say, right? Like that there's a there's a space. For uh, something or someone to come in uh, 
and claim, right, uh, uh, that they have authority and that uh, people should have confidence in them, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And what's weird is that it's turning out to be billionaires, right? Like it's, uh, we have a billionaire president, or at least he says he's a billionaire. Uh, we have, uh, you know, these people like Tom Steyer who uh, are billionaires and are sort of uh, thinking about, you know, or, or very clearly throwing their hat into the political ring. We have a political party in the country that's entirely funded by billionaires. And not only this, like that's the sort of stuff that we all know. Not only that, but it turns out that the most trusted institutions in our culture are also run by billionaires. So, uh, let, me, so let me just, I mean, I think that that's fascinating. I think I have like one major thought. I mean, or it's a two-parter. Like on the one hand, that seems totally weird and perverse. But on the other hand, it seems like the logical conclusion of capitalism. You know, I think it is right. Like uh, I I think that I all, I guess all the only thing that I have to add to the sort of uh, uh, widespread noticing of a decline of confidence in institutions is the fact that there's an increasing confidence on the other side uh, in, uh, in capitalist institutions and large corporations and billionaires. But the the weird thing is now that people of both parties seem to also desire it, right? Like that yeah. uh, uh, people actually profess their own confidence in these uh, these people, in billionaires. And, uh, uh, and I think that that's new. I think that that's a little scary. I mean, especially with the rise of sort of global oligarchies, that, that that's something that uh, is relatively new, or at least it's reached a new level of intensity. But again, I mean, you know, if if you live in a world where you're you're told from a variety of different sources that the point of life is to make money, would it not then just seem logical that you would have faith in the people who've been most successful in that endeavor? Absolutely. Yeah, I I, I completely agree with that. Right. Like that um, uh, sort of. Uh, part and parcel of kind of late capitalist neoliberal ideology is that everybody is responsible for their own success or failure. Uh, there's no such thing as, as society, that everybody is just this sort of atomized individual who's who's trying to make their own fortune. Like everybody's an entrepreneur. You're trying to sell your identity and brand yourself and like all of this shit that we talk about all the time. Yeah, like I, I think I think that's absolutely true. Uh, but I think that there's something more sinister and concrete happening. And, and, and we'll get to that when we talk about uh, Koshla. Um, OK, well, maybe. I mean, do you have anything else? I mean, maybe this is a good. Maybe this is a to, cliffhanger. To, so to, like uh, to segue all into the next I'm saying, All I'm saying is that uh, uh, for me, this Baker Center study indicates uh, a new level of intensity of the assertion of oligarchic power or at the very least. Uh, a serious opportunity for the assertion of such power. Um, and uh, and I'm going to make the argument later when we talk about Koshla that this power is being um, uh, exerted uh, by these billionaires. Okay. That makes sense. That sounds interesting. I'm on board to hear more. How do you want to, how do you want to move forward? Do you want to start with Patrick Ryan today? You want to start with my guy today or do you want to start with yeah. your guy today? Yeah. Cause I have, I have no idea what you're going to talk about. I don't think you have any idea what I'm going to talk about. Uh, I'm not sure good. I have much of an idea what I'm going to talk about, but I, I can start to talk about some things. All right. Well, who is Patrick Ryan? Tell me. Okay. He grew up in Milwaukee and went on to get educated at Northwestern. Um, his dad ran a car dealership and basically at a pretty young age, he started to uh, develop his entrepreneurial spirit 
and developed ultimately this insurance company, Aon, which has gone on to be one of the largest insurance risk management firms um, on the planet. So he uh, built the, the company basically from the ground up over the course of decades and retired from his position as CEO uh, 10 or 15 years ago and has started other sort of in investment groups. You know, he lives in Chicago. He gives a ton of money to Northwestern, like the stu the stadiums are named after him. He is a, a minority owner in the Chicago Bears. And, um, you know, he's just rich and living in Chicago. <laughs> That's kind of the quick and dirty bio of Patrick Ryan. Now, I, I read a lot about him and I learned a lot about him. Um, there, there are a few different sort of weird historical notes. So way back when, 9-11, the plane crashed into the Aeon office. That's something that sort of is going to come up again and again and again. A lot of people died. And, and Patrick Ryan, sort of part of his legacy, I guess, is, um, you know, similar to George Bush's legacy, who I think he's friendly with, um, is responding to that event. And um, it was obviously uh, catastrophic and difficult. And he was, I think, the kind of CEO who was very much willing to uh, get mired in the weeds. And he took a lot of these responsibilities upon himself in the aftermath of that event to, um, you know, make make things right for families and try to figure out how to how to rebuild from there. So the other thing is that Patrick Ryan's path intersected with Elliot Spitzer's path in the early 2000s before the Elliot Spitzer scandal uh, during the time when Spitzer was still this firebrand um, prosecutor of white collar crime. And at that time, one of the uh, many things that Spitzer was going after was the practice of contingent commissions, which is basically an insurance company practice where insurance agents get paid commissions by underwriters when they're performing especially well, which can mean denying Deny claims. claims right? and, and, and so, so it's a very much you know, ethically, ethically gray. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure how interesting that is, but that came up. Well, I, I mean, one thing that's interesting is that like there's a conflict that you see a lot with billionaires. And, uh, and I think we'll talk about this later too, is that they're like, there can be areas in their lives where uh, it, it, where they're doing things that, that appear uh, ethical and philanthropic and uh, uh, empathetic and all of these sorts of things. Um, but then there's all, you know, then there's the other side, right? Like the larger part uh, of their lives in which they are generating capital in which That's they right. seem to act uh, uh, completely unethically, right? That, that um, so, I mean, like, let's take these two examples of the, the, the things that stood out in this guy's life. Like one, uh, his business is something that gets demolished on 9-11 and then he spends a lot of time like making things right for families 
but at the same time, right, other families who experience uh, uh, other kinds of tragedies, he's involved in denying claims with them and, and encouraging people to deny claims. Uh, in fact, giving them a financial interest in denying claims to other people, right? So, like, I mean, that's like that. That is uh, something that comes up so often when you're uh, talking about billionaires. It's, like, it's it's almost and and this is a, I think like this is probably like what like the special sociopathic talent that billionaires have is that they're somehow able to compartmentalize in their minds uh, their ethical behavior with regard to individual human beings who they meet in a face-to-face contact and their behavior with regard to... Uh, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, and I think it's, it's, it's part of that is the fact that they're surrounded by people who, whose salary depends on the success of the business, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and they're telling these guys how honorable and wonderful they are. And it just sort of reaffirms this very sort of narrow worldview. Yeah. I, I mean, it's a, I, I think that that's right. Right. Like the, it, it's kind of a mistake to, uh, you know, while I, I think that like, I, I don't think, I, I think that those ethical sorts of conflicts are not ultimately irresolvable and that a good person, right, would, would, would not uh, sort of fall into that pattern. Uh, however, I do think it's a sort of a mistake to focus too intently on the individual ethical decisions of uh, billionaires themselves, because the, like the point that you're making is that uh, they are parts of much larger systems that mandate uh, particular kinds of actions uh, from them, right? Like that, uh, whether right. it's, uh, the imperative to increase profit for, for shareholders or, or whatever it is, uh, or maybe it's just to keep the paychecks, uh, uh, coming, right? Like to keep the, 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 uh, uh, the system of employment, uh, that's under their control, uh, to reproducing itself. Like that, that, that is, those are real concerns, right? And those are in some way ethical concerns as well. But there's never like there never seems to be any sort of question about uh, uh, the ethical implications of the system itself, right? Like that's the that's the place where it seems possible for them to divorce their uh, their own personal ethics from what they're doing on a day to day basis. Well, so this is maybe a nice segue. So the, the 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 final sort of idea that I guess I explored in my research was was attempting to understand, you know, the infrastructural role that insurance plays for the global economy and for life on the planet. And as I was, it's obviously a huge idea. It's, it's very difficult to, to boil down into a few meaningful nuggets of discourse. Uh, But there was one moment where I found a summary of a conference keynote talk that he gave back in 2005. And in that talk, he was quoted as saying, commerce does not exist without commercial insurance. And for me, that was a that was interesting to think about. Uh, it sort of caused me to pause and and realize that the entire global economy is like very literally underwritten, yeah. <laughs> you know, by by in, insurance. And 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 so then the logical question to ask is, well, what would the world look like if there were no insurance at all? You know, what is the, what is a insuranceless economy look like? I googled that. And there's a there's a insurance company um, that may that that made a video that maybe we'll link to, 
but what is it called? It's, it's, I think it's literally called a, a world without insurance. Uh, but basically in this video, they sort of explicitly highlight the fact that insurance is a requirement for the development of large scale infrastructure. Yeah. And there would not be like large scale, like mega projects without insurance because no one would be capable of taking on that level of risk. Mm. And so, so, so the big point I think is, you know, on the one hand, okay, cool. Like insurance allows for civilization to develop in all of these ways that would not otherwise be possible. And we can have different kinds of experiences as humans, as a result of this. Uh, And civilization obviously has a lot of interesting things to offer at the same time, it's clearly spinning out of control, you know, <laughs> and and the, these sort of large scale mega, mega projects um, have a kind of risk associated with them that people are willing to take on, but maybe that nobody should have taken on in the first place. There's no there's no insurance policy that can actually ensure the, the level of risk that we've taken on as a civilization or as a as a planet. Go ahead, introduce your guy. All right, uh, so I'm talking about Vinod Koshla today. Uh, you, he is uh, very well known for something that we're going to talk about in a second. Uh, but the way that he made his fortune was as a founder of Sun Microsystems. Uh, you've probably heard of. He is the creator of Java and NFS systems. Uh, NFS is like um, sort of like uh, a uh, intranet storage systems for workplaces it's like a sort of a predecessor to clouds you know it's like your workplace will have an intranet where you can store files and stuff Mm -hmm. i think he had some pioneering role in that kind of thing anyway that's all pretty boring um now he's a venture capitalist like most people who made a fortune in tech um and I, I I'm really happy that this guy came up, not only because he's our first tech billionaire and those ones tend to be really interesting to me, but because this guy is is like the most stereotypical version of that person that you could imagine. He's a he's a walking TED talk. Like if you could make a TED talk into a human being, uh, that's what he looks like. In fact, not only not only does he talk and like here's his Twitter bio. I, I have his Twitter bio here. It says he's quote an entrepreneurship zealot a grounded technology possibilist and a believer in the power of ideas. Are you, do you believe in ideas, Joe? I mean, do you think ideas are, this, can we just pause and talk about this kind of rhetoric for a second? It just how like unbelievable, like why is it that the richest, why is it that corporate rhetoric is just so fucking dumb? You know, like, like, sorry, is that coming across as too intense? Uh, I, I, no. <laughs> I just feel like, I mean, so there was a, uh, in this new investment group that Patrick Ryan put together after he left Aon, I went on his webpage and there's, I'm bringing it up right now. So I have it here, but you know, it talks about like our values, you know, and integrity, teamwork, innovation, empowerment, blah, 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 just standard nonsense. But then, you know, below that, 
there's a series of statements describing who they are as a firm. And <laughs> it's like the it's like the the Papa Roach song with the the suffocation no breathing <laughs> where it's just defining the terms that they're saying. <laughs> it's like it's like we are tenacious. We work until we achieve our goal. <laughs> we are energetic. We have an energy. <laughs> it's so dumb. I mean, it's not that this isn't an accident, right? Like it's, it is dumb because the people are dumb, right? Like they read a bunch of dumb books and they uh, never think for a second about the world outside uh, of their, whatever pursuit they're trying to make their fortune in. Like until, like it dawns on them that they've become a financial success and then they they look back and reflect on what they've done and the best that they can come up with is i believe in the power of ideas and i value excellence and shit like that because they don't have any idea what they did right like the, the, it's not like billionaires are, are these singular geniuses who have who have uh, uh, either they invented something that sold a lot or, you know, which might make them, you know, brilliant in whatever particular area that they invented something in, but it certainly doesn't right. make them any kind of generally right. applicable expert on uh, on other issues. Uh, so, like, either they've they've invented something or they've just, like, been in the right place at the right time. Like, people in the financial industries and banking, they're just incredibly privileged people who have ascended to these uh, positions because, like, they got lucky, right? And so, like, it, you know, it, it just constantly, like, boggles my mind that our culture looks to entrepreneurs as a, like sources of wisdom. They're just rich guys. Like they're just rich people. And they're, and like, there's, there's really nothing that would suggest that they have any knowledge or expertise in anything outside of where uh, the area where they made their fortune. And so like, why does this shit sound stupid? Because it is stupid because they don't have anything to say. <laughs> like they, they look back and they're like, oh, how did I become a success? Let me write down my wisdom. And it's just the same dumb shit. Like who hid my cheese or whatever it is that every other <laughs> business asshole reads. Like there's nothing there. Uh, and so like you read like this guy's, you know, Twitter bio or the shit at the bottom of Patrick Ryan's webpage and it's all the same. They're all using the same words, uh, cause they yeah. all have the same books and like, it's just, it's nonsense. Right. And hey, it's part of it is the illusion, right? Like part of it is maintaining the illusion that there is some expertise there. Uh, like they're, they're all some version of like, I mean, you saw that, like, you've seen these like infomercials. They were on all the time when I was a kid about like this guy who will make you a millionaire in real estate or make you a millionaire. Right. Uh, you have like the Matthew Lesko guys or like government go, you can get free government money. Like the, these people, <laughs> like if, you know, like if they were so yeah. good at what they, like if they, if they were able uh, to, um, to actually like sort of provide knowledge uh, to people that was actionable, and uh, and could lead to them being rich, then they wouldn't be selling it so cheap, right? Like they, they wouldn't be on infomercials for nineteen ninety nine. It's because it's just recycled garbage and like, yeah, um, you know, and, and like and the but the, so anyway, that maybe that's low hanging fruit. No, but I mean it's it's, it's maybe, interesting because like because they don't seem to get that themselves, right? Like they're so invested in it. Like most of the information that I got about Koshla is from uh, uh, stuff that his venture capitalist form or a uh, venture capitalist uh, 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 
uh, business uh, puts out. He has like an entire YouTube channel that does like faux TED Talks. They're set up like TED Talks. They look like TED Talks. Um, and all of them, like I wrote down some of the titles. They're like, uh, how to think like a billionaire entrepreneur. Uh, like the business, <laughs> the business of culture, power pitching to investors, why we brand, how to scale, social physics and human behavior. And then there's like, there's, there's like more like uh, dreamy futurist stuff that they do, like uh, implications of the second machine age and uh, hyper growth in the enterprise, re-engineering everything with software, the unbreakable laws of storytelling. You know, like it's just, it's just like um, really wow. dumb stuff, like uh, kind of over and over and over again. And they have, I mean, I don't even know, like he has, I don't know, 50 or 60 videos of people that he's invited to speak at his venture capitalist firm. Uh, many of them uh, feature him giving talks. Like none of them have any views. Um, and it's just like people delivering TED talks of recycled business bullshit, like into the ether. Like nobody, I, it's just a branding exercise as far as I can tell. Like, um, but uh, one of his talks, which I want to, I want to listen to a couple of clips from today is. Yeah, called, let's do it. Um, well, well, before we get there, I mean, we haven't talked about the most interesting part of this guy, which if you've heard his name before, uh, you've heard it not associated. Is this the beach? The beach boy. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. So uh, Vinod Koshla is most famous uh, for being the guy who uh, put up a gate, locked it, stationed armed guards at the entrance to a public beach and claimed it as his own because it was near some property he bought and he wanted it for himself. Um, and so we're going to I'm going to play uh, just a quick news clip uh, that explains the issue a little bit. That's right, Liz. The gates are still locked. You know, a lot of people have been hearing about this appeals court ruling and they're coming down here expecting to see these gates wide open. But as you can see, they are still locked. The question is now if or even when these gates will be reopened. <laughs> So okay. I, I love yeah. you know. So I love that uh, he goes on to explain it. Uh, if you want to hear a little bit more about the issue, uh, here we go. The appeals court ruling ordered tech billionaire Vinod Koshla to open the gates on Martin's Beach Road and give the public full access to a beloved stretch of the San Mateo coast. Elaine Lund and Joanne Butterfield came here as children and returned today to celebrate Joanne's birthday with a beach picnic, but they couldn't drive in because the gate was still locked. Last night we were very, very excited to come down because the gate was going to be open. And so we drove over, got a picnic ready to go, and the gate's closed. So we're a little bothered. So we just walked to check it out, and uh, we're surprised. <laughs> <laughs> so this has been going on for a decade, and, he's, and people are suing him. Um, he cited... In court, they cited the 1848 Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo <laughs> that has some stipulation about Mexican land grant rights that uh, that he claimed uh, exempted him uh, from uh, respecting California's uh, coastal laws about the uh, uh, about public beaches. I mean, it's it's been like what an asshole. He's a he's a complete asshole, and, and this has been going on for ten years. But if you it, to hear him talk about it, he's not an asshole. I know that's surprising <laughs> that he doesn't think he's an asshole. But I, I thought we could also listen uh, just really briefly about his explanation. Uh, for let's why, do it. No, why I'm he's not eager an with anticipation. Okay, so this is uh, Bloomberg interviewing him about 
the uh, beach access suit. I'm religious about my belief systems. So when I have a battle on, beach, on the beach, back to your question, it's about property rights and about a set of people who want to use coercion. In fact, they told me they'd like to embarrass me into giving up my rights. Well, if you have a belief system, even though it's unpopular, even though the press all knocks you for it, you want to live by your principles. Whether it's that or protecting private property rights and fighting for what the law is, and when it's not clear, and there's clearly some things that are not clear in the law, it's important to get them legally resolved. The courts are the way you resolve things, not somebody's opinion, not the press. Not, okay. Not My belief system is just to lock people off the public beach. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so his, so. his belief system includes uh, not following the laws because yeah. the courts <laughs> a whole bunch of times have uh, have told him that he's got to unlock those gates and uh, he can't have armed guards there. And people, it's a public beach. And uh, he thinks his belief system that he is religious about, uh, as he says, tells him that uh, that that's his beach. <laughs> and it's just it's insane. utter nonsense, right? Like okay. so, th- but like th- but this gets to like a real core of the the billionaire mindset, and like this is why I was saying he would help us to articulate our perspective a little bit more. Like first of all, they're they're generally pretty hardcore libertarians when it comes to property rights, especially tech billionaires. Uh, there's a real like libertarian kind of ethos that permeates Silicon Valley. And and, and that's not too <clears throat> like uh, uh, unusual to know. Like, you know, it's, it's pretty widely understood. Um, but like in a, in a larger sense, like, okay, so maybe he has these like libertarian principles or whatever. Um, what, what it's, pretty clear that he wants more than anything else is to bar other people from access, like not just to the beach, uh, but to everything that uh, uh, billionaires interact with, right? Like whether it's gates or guards or fences or walls or like whatever, Mm. um, Mm. like the, the principle of the exclusion of everybody else and the creation of a private space just for a protected class of people uh, uh, applies to everything and more than anything else, it's the financial space that they're in. Right. And this is why the philanthropy is fucking bullshit, uh, across the board is because it doesn't do anything to change the system that protects their financial interests and their financial privilege. Uh, and, uh, it doesn't do anything to change the system that keeps other people from any kind of social mobility, right? Like that their philanthropy is a way to say, oh, actually we are good people. We're doing good. And so we shouldn't get rid of billionaires. We shouldn't do anything to sort of change the system that produces this hyper wealthy class of people. Uh, we shouldn't do anything to change uh, uh, the, the system that, that spits out oligarchs like Vinod Koshla. Uh, who think that they can just take pieces of the commons and claim it as their own and uh, and uh, exclude people from it. Like, they, like, this is what the core of their belief system is. And this is why he gets so mad about the beach thing, right? Like that it's like the, the politics of exclusion and the politics of protecting a particular class of, of rich people is what is, is the, the line that he won't cross. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He'll give money to sort of like, you know, tech startups who are helping education or whatever. 
But that's only because it doesn't threaten him in any way. And it's a thing that like, allows, you know, it's a public relations move. It's something that allows him to feel good about himself. Uh, but it, it doesn't have any sort of real effect on the status quo. And like, I think you just nailed it, man. That's a core concept. It is. I think it is. A Let core that concept. be recorded. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, it is a core concept. So now I want to talk about this, like this video that he, uh, it's one of his like fake TED Talks that he put up on his website called Reinventing Societal Infrastructure with Technology. And uh, and it, it, it presents to me, it presents a pretty dark vision of what the billionaire future, the oligarchic future look like, looks like. So, okay. I'm just going to summarize a part like, like verbally real quick, which is that he begins with a problem, right? Like the, and, and it sounds like a very, uh, admirable problem to want to, to want to address. He says that, 700 million people on the planet out of 7 billion enjoy a different kind of standard of living than everybody else, right? So it's this 10% of the human population uh, has a much higher standard of living than, than you know, th- these are the numbers he's, he uses. I don't, I don't know where he's getting them, uh, than, uh, than 90% of the population. And his question is, how do we catch everybody else up? Like, you know, and, and which is kind of a weird question to ask, right, in the, in the shadow of climate change. I'm not sure that's exactly the right question to be asking, but that's what he asks. He wants to raise the standard of living for everybody, and he thinks that the way to do that is through entrepreneurial innovation. And so he names the, – the, the clip that I'm jumping to uh, is where he begins naming all of the parts of the GDP, as he puts it, that are open to innovation, So last August, I looked at all major parts of the non-governmental GDP in the United States and said, what couldn't be reinvented? Not by 5% better, 10% better, but by 100% better, 500%. Like we could, could we do large multiplication of resources? And surprise, there was no part of GDP that couldn't be reinvented. Every area I looked at, one of you was already working on it. But I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read you really quickly what's on his slide. This is what is open to innovation. Uh, health and medicine, transportation and space, food and food production, manufacturing and construction, financial services, energy, water, and climate, which is uh, everything, right? Like it's, it's uh, uh, the, every institution that we have is open, as he says, to innovation and disruption by entrepreneurs. Um, okay. Uh, like what, what does that mean though? Like what, so historically, any federally regulated or federally uh, created uh, infrastructure, whether it's dams or roads or bridges or, or, or like whatever, like these are generally built and maintained by federal, state, and local uh, democratic institutions, right? Like he's making he's making a claim here that, uh, and he's going to get to it in a second. That actually it would be better uh, if these were if these kinds of things were created and maintained by. Uh, uh, private companies right. by billionaires, more or less, right? And so he makes a pretty big claim here uh, uh, where he says, he makes the claim that in the last 30 years, there have been no major innovations uh, by any governmental institutions or any, uh, any basically any non-corporate entities. But what also surprised me, actually shocked me, looking back 30 years, I couldn't find one disruption that wasn't called by an entrepreneur or a founder-led company. 
Retail wasn't innovated by Walmart, by Amazon. Media wasn't done by the media companies. Space wasn't innovated by the space companies. You can go on and on, and I won't go through all of them, but you get the idea. I couldn't come up with one example in 30 years that large institutions could do. Which gives you a, a kind of window into uh, how his thinking works and how the thinking works of uh, the, the tech billionaires in general. They think that governments are too slow and too clumsy uh, to, to address uh, climate change in general, because if you notice, all of the things that he's talking about here uh, have to do with overpopulation and resource scarcity. And so – uh, uh, this is where I'm getting to the the what I think is the interesting point, right? So he's talking about health. He's talking about housing. He's talking about food and agriculture. He's talking about energy and decarbonization. Like all of these areas for innovation uh, are places that are reaching crisis points because of overpopulation and because of uh, uh, lack of arable land, because of climate change and all of these things. So like it's becoming clear to billionaires that the time uh, that, that we are at a moment where massive infrastructural uh, projects are going to be need to be undertaken to address climate change. Like we're not really in the stage of thinking about climate change anymore, where it's like, oh, we need to recycle more. We need to drive less and that sort of thing. We're at the stage like we're, you know, like those things are important and we should do those. But like we're at the stage where, oh, now we have to think about things uh, uh, like uh, massive uh, switch over, uh, away, switches away from um, uh, 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 carbon intensive uh, forms of energy and uh, carbon intensive forms of farming and livestock. Yeah, I mean, like it's going to be an infrastructural disruption on a massive scale. Exactly, no right? And, and so I think that the overall ethos that's kind of emerging among the billionaire class is that uh, they understand that people don't trust governments to do that anymore, right? Like they, they understand that the lack of confidence in uh, democratic institutions is opening a space where people like uh, Amazon and Google can jump in and say, oh, we'll take on this uh, infrastructure project. Like we can do. And then what does that look like? What does politics look like at that point? Well, there is no politics, right? Like they, they, that's the thing, right? It shuts off, uh, it, 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 it insulates uh, the innovation from the democratic process, right? This is why, like Peter Thiel wants to do away with the FDA, right? Like he, they, they hate regulation because it slows down the nimbleness of innovation uh, uh, in the entrepreneur class, right? Like, so what they, I, I, I really believe that what the like ideal scenario for them is is. No, nobody really trusts government institutions to do anything except maybe like some parts of defense. And we just privatize the entire commons. And whenever we need to innovate because of climate change, overpopulation or hunger or poverty or whatever, we turn to some uh, nimble company and give them billions of dollars and say, please solve this problem for us. Right. Like, well, I mean, let me just jump in and say, I mean, the, the, the fundamental fact that is at stake here is that that all of these people with these ideas have been able to extract profits from resource environments that they've never replenished yeah. and never been able to give back to you know and so at a certain point when those resource environments no longer exist this mythology just completely sort of crumbles yeah 
right? No, I, yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think just basically like, you know, uh, in the 60s, uh, the idea, like, how do we, um, you know, you can think of the, the space race uh, as a response to uh, an international crisis, uh, you know, like, and maybe it was a symbolic crisis or whatever, but, uh, you know, like, there was a massive tax-funded government project to create NASA uh, to uh, produce, you know, rockets to go to the moon and sort of all this stuff. And the way, like, and people were behind that and people had a lot of faith in it. I mean, like, that was the sort of uh, template for for how massive projects get done, right? But now there's this kind of neoliberal template for how massive projects, massive infrastructural projects like that get done. And uh, and now it's like this, the Elon Musk model, right? Now it's, uh, well, there will be private-public partnerships, right? But they're not really partnerships and, and they're not really private-public partnerships. They're really like the public giving money to the private sector because publicly no, subsidized publicly <laughs> subsidized private projects because there's no democratic input going into decision making in these places, right? Like, um, and that is the fantasy, right? Like that's the fantasy that Koshla is articulating in this talk. What does it mean? to remake societal infrastructure with technology. It means setting up billionaire investors as the only people who are nimble enough and fast enough to respond to these emerging crises and these escalating crises. Like they're the ones to do it. And I I mean, I I really see it as a moment of the assertion of oligarchic power uh, that is, is you know that we haven't seen for a long time in the United States and it's something to be to be pretty concerned about so awesome like great research Chad I was I thought all that was super interesting should we move into roulette mode yeah you want to spin the wheel i'm gonna spin the wheel and uh so just for first time listeners we're uh we're doing our random selection of the billionaires that we'll be looking at next episode oh number one is stanley drukenmiller the founder of duquesne capital uh, I'll, I'll take Stanley Drucken. How do you spell it? Druckenmiller, D-R-U-C-K-E-N, Miller. Uh, he's a hedge fund guy. All right. Uh, and the second one is Jimmy Haslam, owner of the Cleveland Browns football team. You sure you don't want that one? I don't know anything about sports. Oh, he's the, he's the, uh, I can do that. Uh, whatever you pilot. Want. He's the uh, uh, truck stop chain owner, uh, a Flying J pilot and Flying J truck stop owners. Eh, maybe it would be good for you to learn something about sports. I'll stay on uh, All right. truck and mill. Okay. That sounds good. Any final thoughts? Uh, no final thoughts. Just uh, thanks, everybody, again for listening. Uh, you know, we're still working through things. We're still trying to articulate uh, a vision for the show. Uh, hopefully there's some stuff in here that was interesting for you. And uh, hopefully you come back next week. Thanks.